taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. I'll be reading from the New King James translation. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We tend to use the word exalt only in a religious context, but we do an awful lot of exalting in many areas of our lives. The title of the lesson this morning is Exalting Jesus Christ. What does it mean to exalt someone? The word exalt means to lift up on high, to place on a pedestal. That might be the way we say it now. To put someone in a, in a league all their own. We exalt sports figures, men and women who achieve exceptional results on the field of play. We exalt people in business, people who are movers and shakers and high achievers, and, and we look at them as models of people to be emulated. We admire their hard work. We admire their discipline. We admire their dedication. We exalt them. We exalt people who are political figures. Maybe their ideas line up with our ideas. And we think that this person has the answers. This person knows how to lead us and how to guide us. And we exalt that person in our minds and we talk about them to others. So to exalt someone means that we place them on a pedestal, we lift them up in our minds and we esteem them highly and we talk to others about them. We need to exalt Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when you think about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, there is no person that we ought to exalt more highly. And when Jesus is properly exalted in our lives, there's really no room for anybody else to even compare or even compete with him. When Jesus has his proper place on the throne of our hearts, it ought to make a difference in how we see ourselves and in how we see others. Look in your Bibles if you're looking at the book of Philippians. We just read from Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 where the Bible says that God has highly exalted Jesus as a result of his obedience and his death and given him a name that is above every name that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord. When you think about Philippians, it really tells us an awful lot about how to put Jesus in his proper place in our lives. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul mentions that what he wants more than anything is for Christ to be magnified. Whether he lives or he dies, I want Jesus to be magnified. I want people to see something of Christ in me. That's what Paul said. The Bible speaks about in Philippians 3 verse 10, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. 
magnifying Christ, exalting Christ, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, knowing Christ, Philippians 3, 10. I want to know him, and I know what that means. It means that I share in his sufferings and that I'm going to be conformed to his resurrection if I know Christ, if I have a relationship with him. Exalting Christ is about rejoicing in the Lord. Philippians 4.4 tells us that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4 verse 10, rejoice in the Lord. We are to have a relationship with our creator. We're to lift up Jesus Christ. Do you? Is Jesus really the prominent person in your life? Is he the one that more than anyone else is he the one to whom you owe your allegiance is he the one that people would if they were around you for a little while would get the impression this person really thinks a lot of jesus this person really exalts and lifts up jesus christ would they get that impression from talking to you or spending time with you with our study this morning i'd like for us to do this Practically speaking, I'd like to share six ways in which the Bible tells us that we can exalt Jesus Christ. Six practical ways in which we can lift him up in our lives and show people that we believe in him, that we think highly of him, that he really is our all in all. That we really do want to magnify and exalt and know him and rejoice in him no matter what circumstances we find ourselves as you think about practical ways to exalt Jesus Christ, let me share with you the first one. We can exalt Jesus Christ, number one, in making the good confession. Confessions have consequences. Confession is something that you say with your mouth, and when you confess something, you're supposed to be telling the truth. You're supposed to be saying what you believe to be true. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul writes this. Challenging young Timothy, a preacher of the gospel that was much younger, he said, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession. He's saying, Timothy, there was a point in your past when you stood up before other people and you said, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he is the son of God. I believe who he's, he claims to be. That's who he really is. You made the good confession. And Paul goes on and says, you did this in the presence of many witnesses. Everybody heard you say this, Timothy. We know this is what you believe. This is what you said you believed. So keep fighting the good fight. And then Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he brings attention to what Jesus did. Watch this. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives his life or who gives life to all things, and I charge you in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate also made the good confession. So there's a good confession that you and I are to make. I believe in Jesus. He's going to be my Lord. He's going to rule my life. I'm going to be loyal to him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to listen to his authority and do what he says. That's the good confession that you and I are to make. But Jesus made a similar confession. When Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It's as you say. Are you a king then? You have rightly said, I am a king. John 18, verses 36 and 37. Jesus made the good confession. 
Do people know that we're Christians? Do people know that we belong to Jesus? Would you tell somebody if that were true about you? It's the confession that we make. Jesus made the good confession, John 18, 27. Not only did Jesus make the good confession, Timothy made the good confession, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, in the presence of witnesses. Not only did Timothy make the good confession, but Peter did. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. And Peter, the apostle, stands up and says, I know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by the way, there wasn't a great deal of evidence for Peter to make that confession in Matthew 16, 16. It certainly wasn't a popular notion. It wasn't what everybody thought. Some were saying Jesus was Elijah. Some were saying he was Jeremiah, one of the prophets, maybe John the Baptist. We're not really sure who this guy is. Peter knew. And Peter said, in a measure of faith, I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God. That's what I believe. Peter made the good confession. John made the good confession. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he tells us that he's written these things in the book of John, the signs and the miracles and the wonders that Jesus did, so that we might know and believe the same things that John believes, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Everybody who ever followed Jesus, everybody who ever became a disciple had to make the good confession. So do you, and so do I. The disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus said, Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him. Jesus is listening to what you say. When somebody comes up to you in the world and and they say, You're a Christian, aren't you? You follow Jesus, don't you? How do you respond? What do you say? Are you embarrassed? I don't want other people to know that Jesus is part of my life. We're not exalting Christ if we're not making the good confession. Philippians 2 verse 11, talking about how God has exalted Jesus very highly. Philippians 2 verse 11 says, Every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wise are the people who confess Christ before the day of judgment. But regardless, no matter how antagonistic or hostile someone has been to the gospel, no matter how, how violent they have try, violently they've tried to offend and, and oppress the people of God, every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And my question for you this morning is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus is asking you this question. Who do you say that I am? If you haven't yet obeyed the gospel, who do you say that Jesus is? What do you say about him? Because he's going to be exalted either now by your choice or later against your will. But it's true both ways. Jesus Christ is the son of God and he's done something for you that no one else could ever do. And he is the one to whom we owe our allegiance. We exalt him by making the good confession. Secondly, how do we exalt Jesus Christ? Practical ways. How do I lift up and show that Jesus really does matter to me and that he really is the center and the, and the hope and, and the focus of my life? How do I show that practically? In obeying his will concerning baptism. Listen to what he said. 
It's not what John says, not what the church members here say. It's what Jesus says. Listen to his words. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Those are the words of Jesus himself. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. We exalt him. We lift him up and we say, I believe that Jesus has the answers. I believe that he has the solution. I believe that he is the one who can save me from my sin. I say those things when I hear and obey what he teaches, including what he teaches about baptism. You know what baptism is? As you study through the New Testament, you know what the Bible says about baptism? The Bible says that baptism is important. It's not just an afterthought. It's not just some kind of external act of obedience that really has no significance. It's just a symbol of some things. That's not true. Jesus says make disciples by baptizing them, Matthew 28, 19. So you've got Mark 16, 16 that we just looked at, which says he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And then you've got Jesus saying in Matthew 28, 19, whoever believes and is baptized is my disciple. You've got Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 where the scripture teaches that when we're baptized, we are putting our faith in the working of God. That's significant. Baptism, the Bible teaches, is important. Not just that, but the Bible describes baptism as a picture. In Romans 6 verses 3 and 4, the scripture indicates that we are buried with Christ in baptism and that we are raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. It's a picture. Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead. And when we're baptized, we're buried with Christ and we rise to walk in newness of life. Or, different picture, Galatians 3.27. Baptism is putting on Christ. Whoever has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. Like putting on a coat, putting on a garment. I wasn't wearing the coat. I wasn't wearing Christ before. But now that I've been baptized, I have put on Christ. That's the picture. The Bible indicates that we exalt Jesus when we listen to what he's saying and we do what he teaches regarding baptism. What's its design? What's it designed to do? It's not just an outward sign of something that's already happened to us on the inside. That's not true. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter the apostle, the first time the gospel was ever preached, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was ever preached was on Pentecost Day in Acts chapter 2. And people listening to the sermon on that day, they asked Peter, they said, what must we do? If we've crucified the Son of God, what should we do? You know what Peter said in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. It's in baptism that we receive cleansing and forgiveness and the remission of sins because that's the way Jesus designed it. In Acts 22.16, the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, was given this, this advice. Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins. That's its design. What is baptism? It has a connection. The connection of baptism. Just as Noah was saved through the ark, 
he and his family, it says in 1 Peter 3, verse 20, were taken out of a sinful world and they were delivered by water into a new and cleansed world. So it is also true that those who are baptized in water, putting their faith in the working of God and the salvation that's provided by Jesus, those people exalt him because baptism is connected to, at the end of 1 Peter 3, 21, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, there's a connection in baptism. And friends, we exalt Jesus when we obey his will concerning baptism. Not going to argue with him, not going to argue with the Bible. I'm going to do what he teaches is right. It's about exalting Christ. Or let me ask this a different way. Can I really exalt Christ? Can I really lift him up and give him the most prominent place in my life if I deny that what he says concerning baptism is true? If I go through my life saying, I believe everything Jesus teaches, but when it comes to this subject, now it plainly doesn't mean what it says. Can I really exalt Jesus if that's true of me, of you? Number three, how do we exalt Jesus? Through the Lord's Supper. You know, we worship in many different avenues. We sing praises. We give. We offer prayers. One of the things that's unique about the Lord's Supper is that it is the Lord's Supper. It's a way in which we exalt specifically Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says this in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. When he's instituting the Lord's Supper, right before he goes to the cross, Jesus takes bread and he gives it, uh, gives it to his disciples after he gives thanks. And he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he takes the cup after they had eaten and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Just a few minutes ago, we observed the Lord's Supper. And we, even today, still eat the bread in remembrance of the body of Christ. And we drink the cup in remembrance of the blood of Christ because it's a way in which we exalt Jesus Christ. You got your Bible? Open to it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And look, if you would, at verses 23 and following. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following, the scripture talks about how the Lord's Supper is a special time in which we exalt Jesus specifically. We're thankful to God for his great plan. We're thankful for what he's done. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit revealing these things to us. But the Lord's Supper is especially about the Lord. It's about Jesus and what he's done for us. And 1 Corinthians 11 alludes to that. The Lord's Supper is something that the early church did. It says in Acts 2.42, right after they were converted, that they continued steadfastly, consistently in observing the Lord's Supper. In Acts 20, verse 7, it was on the first day of the week that they assembled. You ever wonder why Christians assemble on Sunday? Why Sunday's important to Christians? Sunday's important to Christians because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the day that the church began in Acts chapter 2. And it's also the day that the early Christians met to observe the Lord's Supper. Incidentally, Sunday is the Lord's day. The whole day belongs to Him. 
It's a day in which we give honor and we show by where we are and what we do where our hearts really are, what we're really loyal to. The early church assembled and observed the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. Now look at 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 23, it indicates that this was a frequent observance. I received this from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And then if you look at verse 26 of the same passage, as often as you do this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, this was a frequent observance. It was a weekly observance in the first century. Every Sunday, every first day of the week, the church would get together and they would give and they would observe the Lord's Supper. Those two things were non-negotiable. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Every single week. Not only that, but when you look at what the Lord's Supper is, it's a memorial. You know, if you go to Washington, D.C., all over that city there are memorials monuments to great men and great events and great people in our nation's history and you can go to those memorials and you can reflect on the significance of those memorials you can go to the vietnam wall the vietnam memorial and you can see the names of men who gave their lives for our country you can go to the world war ii memorial and you can remember the men who said women who sacrificed themselves for our country and fought in that cause you can go to the martin luther king memorial and you can remember what he stood for and what he fought for and what, what kinds of things that he said. You can go to these memorials and you reflect, the Lincoln Memorial. All these things remind us of events in our history. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's coming in our minds back to the cross and reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. And it's remembering his body. And it's remembering his blood and the significance of those things being offered for us. It's a proclamation of his death as well. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, when we observe the Lord's Supper, here at Katy, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering, it's not just a memorial, but it's preaching it's preaching to those among us who are not Christians. It's preaching to the world around us. Jesus died for us. We proclaim his death until he comes, it says. What is the Lord's Supper? It's a solemn act of worship. Reflect and examine and ask, am I doing this in a manner that exalts, that brings glory to Jesus Christ? Those things ought to be in our minds and in our hearts as we observe the Lord's Supper together. Next, how do I exalt Jesus Christ? Practical ways. I can confess Him. I can obey His will in baptism. I can observe the Lord's Supper in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. I'm not just doing it haphazardly, but I'm thinking about the significance of the memorial and what I'm proclaiming. I'm exalting Christ by doing these things. Number four, how about by wearing the name Christian? Most of the time, still today, it always used to be this way. When a young lady and a young man got married, the young lady would take the young man's name. And so, you'd have a maiden name, name that you were before you were married, and then, now that you're married, you have your husband's name. When we obey the gospel and we become full disciples of Jesus Christ through baptism, through connecting with Jesus and his blood in the waters of baptism, when that happens to us, we take on a new name. 
and the name we take on is the name Christian. And maybe you're aware of this, but there are only three verses in the New Testament where you find the word Christian. Here they are. Acts 11, verse 26. When he had found him, talking about Apollos going to get Paul, Apollos brought, or excuse me, Barnabas going to get Paul, Barnabas brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. What are we going to call these people? These people follow Jesus. They exalt Him. They want Him to be the Lord of their lives. They, they talk about Him all the time and they talk about how we need to obey Him. What are we going to call these people? We're going to call them Christians. They're going to wear His name. This obviously caught on because a lot of people were using the word Christian in ensuing years, so much so that King Herod Agrippa, who was not interested in the gospel and not interested in being a Christian, asked this in Acts 26, verse 28, second verse. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Herod Agrippa knew that Paul wore the name Christian. He said, you want me to wear that name too? You're going to persuade me to, to do what Jesus says so that I can wear his name? Is that really what you want from me, Paul? And then a third verse. 1 Peter 4.16. Where do we find the name Christian? Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Because you're wearing the name, because you belong to him, because people know you belong to him and they know you wear that name. If you suffer for that reason, don't be ashamed, but glorify, exalt God in that name. How do I exalt Jesus Christ? By wearing the name Christian. Are you a Christian? And, by the way, is that all you want to be? Because when you read the New Testament, you don't find people who followed Jesus calling themselves by other names. They called themselves Christians. They wore the name of Jesus. And that was the only name they wore. There are a lot of religious people who want to follow Jesus in their lives that are wearing a lot of names other than Christian. Why? What's wrong with the name Christian? And what's wrong with being Christians only? In Churches of Christ, what we believe is that if we just do right now today what the people in the first century did, we'll be what they were. And you know what they did with their lives? They exalted Jesus Christ by wearing his name. Number five, practical ways in which we exalt Jesus Christ. We lift him up in our lives. We show that he has the place of prominence. He has the first place in our lives, seeking to imitate him. They say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. You know, a dad, when he's got little children at home, if you'll pay attention, dads, your children sooner or later will start to imitate you. Sometimes it's kind of in a playful, mocking way, but sometimes they're doing it because that's what my dad does. And, and, and my dad does things right, and, and I'm going to do the things the way my dad does. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It means that we exalt someone. We look up to someone. I want to imitate what they do. The number one person, in fact, really the only person that we ought to try to imitate with our lives is Jesus himself. 
In Philippians 2.5, right before the Bible says that God highly exalted him, the Bible advocates that we have this mind in us, an attitude, the mind of Christ is his mind in you. Do you think and act and reason the way he did? It's about imitating him. And somebody will ask the question, well, in what areas should we imitate Jesus? In other words, are there just some subsections of my life where I need to be more like Christ? Or is this a, is this a whole life transformation? The answer is, I ought to imitate Jesus in everything. I ought to imitate Jesus in his obedience. He said, my food, what I've come to do is the will of God himself. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. That's it. That's why I'm here. John 4.34, John 6.38. I'm here to obey God's word. That's why I'm here in this world. We do well to imitate Jesus in that regard. In his service to others. Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus who is the creator. Jesus who is the great God and has always existed from eternity past. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. We ought to imitate him in his mindset. We ought to imitate Jesus in his compassion. Jesus looked at other people and his wheels started turning in his head. And he started to think about, what do they feel? What are they going through? What burdens are they bearing? And that was the way Jesus went through his life. Compassion means that we feel sympathy with, to feel empathy with, to, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, the Bible says that Jesus had compassion on the multitude. They were like sheep without a shepherd. How should we imitate Jesus in bold loyalty to truth? There are some things that we need to stand for. There are some truths that we must not back down on. We must not compromise. And Jesus would rather suffer the loss of disciples than to compromise the truth. John chapter 6, verses 61 through 68. Read and see if that's not true. He preached a sermon and people started getting up and walking out. And instead of saying, wait, 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 let me, let me change that. I, I, I didn't mean to say those things. Instead of doing that, you know what Jesus did? He turned to his 12 apostles who were close to him and said, are you also going to go away? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 6, verse 68. How ought we to imitate Jesus in prayerfulness? Nobody ever prayed like Jesus. And you and I could stand to learn a lot from the way Jesus prayed and what he prayed about and when he prayed. How should we imitate Jesus? How about in the ability that he had to forgive others? It was a deliberate choice. Even the people who were nailing him to the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How should we imitate Jesus in every way? Number six this morning. How can I exalt Jesus Christ? How can I lift him up and show that he is great and he is mighty and, and I think highly of him, that, that he's the one that is the supreme all in all of my life by being a faithful steward. That's how. By being a faithful steward, 
God has entrusted us with responsibilities, with blessings, and he expects us to be faithful stewards. Proverbs 3 verse 9 teaches that we are to honor the Lord with our possessions and with the first fruits of all of our increase. Does God receive honor in the way that I use the things that he's blessed me with? The Bible says in Matthew 25, verse 21, the parable of the talents, that when the master returned from the far country to settle accounts with his servants, the faithful ones heard this, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter in to the joy of your Lord. God's watching. Jesus is watching the kind of steward that we are. The way that we use the things that he's blessed us with, the way that we use the time and the energy and the resources that are in our hands, God's watching those things. And we exalt Christ when he gets the first place, when he's the reason for what we do. In Matthew 25, verse 40, same chapter, on the day of judgment, many will say, Lord, when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you drink? And the king will answer and say to them in that day, Matthew 25, verse 40, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. When you and I use our resources and our time and our energy to meet needs because we belong to Jesus, it exalts him. It lifts him up. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify, exalt, honor your Father in heaven. The way I live my life can exalt Jesus Christ. Faithful stewardship. We're becoming like, whether we know it or not, we're becoming like whatever we worship, whatever we exalt, whatever we think highly of. Whatever is the priority in your life, that thing is transforming you. It's changing you. And you're becoming more like that. The world would be a better place and your life would be a redeemed life if you would exalt Jesus Christ. Will you do that this morning? Will you put on Christ in baptism? Will you come and ask for prayers if you need those prayers? Heaven's invitation, always at the end of a lesson, is offered to you. Make your way down the aisle while together we stand and while we sing.